Hello and welcome to the PhD Life Raft podcast. I'm Emma Bajinski and today I'm talking to the amazing Alex Young Kim Pang. This is the second time that Alex has been on the podcast and this time we are focusing on his book, Shorter, How Working Less Will Revolutionise the Way Your Company Gets Things Done. And when I say company, we're thinking about you as CEO of your PhD and how you might adopt new methods and models of working to be really productive, but also maintain a sense of perspective on your PhD and a healthy work-life blend. So I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Emma. How's it going? I uh, It's going really well to be able to connect with you. Um, so we had a few full starts for this for this, um, for this this uh, meeting, and I'm just so delighted uh, to have you here and to have this time to talk to you. Um, I was just saying before we came on that um, you were one of the first guests on the podcast talking about your amazing book, Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less. And... Um, which I would totally recommend. I, I recommend it on an almost daily basis. <laughs> and if people haven't read it, I would really recommend it. And also to go back, I'll put the link in the show notes to go back to that episode um, if you haven't heard it, because it, it's, it's really great on thinking about rest and productivity. Um, but today we're talking about another book. Um, but before we get into that, I just um, would like to say, we've already had you here before, but if you could just recap your kind of story your PhD story and then perhaps thinking about how it's brought you to the what we're talking about today sure okay so you know my academic background is in history and sociology of science so um I would have stumbled on that field as an undergraduate I originally went to college to do or of engineering turned out I was a terrible engineer but um, this field that was kind of adjacent to uh, to sort of the sciences and engineering was sort of just my thing. And my father was a professor and my uh, actually a history professor. And so I went into it with the assumption that I was going to be an academic. You know, this was grad school in the 80s when, you know, you knew that sort of career, you know, career futures were bright for everybody. And of course, you hit the market in the early 90s and you have and that was the beginning of like the terrible multi-generational sort of uh, job market that everybody's sort of familiar with. So mm-hmm. I had a few years as a postdoc and then realized that, you know, the kind of window was closing and got a job uh, working at Encyclopedia Britannica as their managing editor. And for me, the revelation there was that, you know, we, you go through graduate school being uh, taught that, right, the academy is the only place in which you have really serious intellectual discussions, you pursue the life of the mind, um, you ask big questions about the world. And it turned out that that's absolutely not the case, that actually (laughs) the business world offers all kinds of opportunities for thinking really seriously and really deeply 
but also sort of having an impact on the world that is much more direct than the one you have sort of in the classroom. And so, you know, for me, sort of the sort of the realization that that in a sense the life of the mind had a kind of portability that my men, you know, that none of my mentors or sort of had sort of ever told me about was sort of a really significant thing. It also turns out that the kinds of stuff that I had studied in history of science, you know, these basic questions about where do ideas come from, sort of what role communities play in shaping the production of knowledge, that these were things that had a kind of, both of a kind of utility in the consulting world and the business world, um, but which uh, the study of which also prepares you for sort of business life in a way that I think none of us had anticipated. And so um, when I kind of went to work uh, after Britannica, moved back to California and sort of stumbled into a job as a technology forecaster and futurist, I found that I was basically asking all the same kinds of questions that I had as an academic. I was just pointing sort of the instrument at the future rather than at the past. And most recently, my work, you know, my books on rest and the hidden role of rest in the lives of really creative people, and then my book about the four-day week, Shorter, um, have continued this kind of sort of hybrid intellectual tradition, where for rest, I was talking an awful lot about the kinds of people I had studied in graduate school, you know, noted scientists, and talking about their daily practices and routines in a way that was very much like Sort of how I had talked about or uh, talked about them when I was uh, when I was an academic, and then in shorter, sort of taking that perspective and applying it to organizations and asking how it is that you know first of all how it is that organizations can help promote uh, promote more rest and apply the lessons of that previous book at scale, but also asking how it is that professional communities or organizations or companies come to understand our relationships between work and time and productivity, how those can be changed, what the relationship is between you know, sort of between work practice and work culture or professional self-identity. Things that really were you know, stuff I had been arguing about in second year you know, sort of seminars as a as a graduate student. And so that's my yeah, that's my own sort of intellectual path. Um, which really is characterized by sort of up the by exploring these same sets of issues in different places, contexts, jobs, industries, you know, or to projects. So that's me. Love it. I love it. And this sense of um, what's really clear in your work, as you say, is this sense of if you step outside the academy, you could still do really interesting thoughtful work your books are, are, are really thoughtfully researched and you draw on that to um to uh yeah to, to come to the conclusions that you come to and because I think that there there is a lot of um pain around at the moment in terms of people in terms of as you say the academic job job market and people um not wanting to step outside um but actually 
you're showing us that there is a there's a gorgeous life out there to be lived there is. beyond yes. know, I think it's you know it's it's both not wanting to step outside but also being conditioned to think that you can't yeah. step outside exactly. that you know that you know that sort of the interest the interesting intellectual stuff happens behind the, the sort of uh, you know on campus and then everything else is you know sort of some kind of uh, you know, sort of intellectual wasteland. And that is absolutely not the case, nor is it the case, I think, that um, sort, of, uh, sort of the graduate education kind of disempowers you to do interesting stuff out in the world. I think it's certainly, there's a kind of translation process that you have to undergo and, and a certain amount of stuff that you have to unlearn about the way in which review or sort of think about think about your skills and present them, but you know, that's, but you know, that stuff, that stuff, any, any, any person can learn. Yes. And I, I think this question then of where do ideas come from? You're saying that that question has been a kind of recurring theme for you and diving into this book that we want to, we're going to talk about today, this, this shorter, um, which is around the four day week, but, but what you're doing here is you're questioning the, the the kind of traditional work patterns that have now been set up um and i often talk to um phd students and say well you're the ceo of your phd you know you get to you get to decide how you're how you're going to work um and then people often fall into that 40 hour a week pattern because they think that is how you should go to work. <laughs> so I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit for us now, where this idea has come from, what what's useful about it or not so useful about it. Um, and as CEO of your PhD, what can you be thinking about a, a working week? Right. Compound so, question there, sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that the, you know, for sort of, you know, for academics, you know, particularly for graduate students, I think that the challenge is that um, you are not just learning, learning a field or learn, you know, or sort of or sort of engaging in a particular piece of research. You're also learning how to be right. You're learning how to be an academic, a scholar, sort of, and part of that is demonstrating adherence to a set of sort of social norms and cultural practices that both mark you as different from sort of the rest of the world and similar to your peers. And I think that the sort of uh, you know that the idea that you, know, you should uh, and you know let's face it often in graduate school workloads are pretty substantial, right? Your learning curve is at times really steep. And you are constantly confronted with new kinds of things that you have to learn and figure out how to do, whether it is, you know, getting through a book a week in each of four classes, whether it is learning how to give conference talks, you know, learning how to put together, you know, how to study for sort of your, uh, your qualifying exams, learning how to write a dissertation. This stuff is pretty nonstop. I think that the challenge that we face is that our colleagues and our peers and, and our advisors tend to communicate to us a version of what we are taught by sort of all you know by all of modern society, which is that not only is it nece- not only 
is it a kind of prerequisite for doing good work, but it's also a pre, uh, but it's also a way of expressing your sort of passion, sort of your or of your love of uh, your love of your company, or in this case, sort of discipline, um, to do extraordinarily long hours, mm-hmm. and that uh, you know, and that if you you know, as there have been you know innumerable Twitter storms over you know one professor or another declaring that you know nobody who does fewer than eighty hours a week is ever going to get a you know is ever going to change the world or get a tenure track job, and the problem with this is that um, it is you know it is actually counterproductive um, and leads to worse, not better work. And is likely to shorten your career, but you know it's a very good ideology if you're a department head and you're trying to you know sort of uh, extract more labor out of sort of your your faculty and your students. What I found in REST was that you know when you look at the lives of incredibly prolific and important people, right? People like you know, famous composers or Charles Darwin or Heisenberg or such. You find that these are people that, you know, that they actually labored about four or five fairly intensive hours a day. And they all follow a fairly common pattern, which is that you know, rather than working extraordinarily long hours, burning the midnight oil, what they do is that they work, uh, in a sense, they work fewer hours, but try and make those hours as intensive as possible, right? Minimum number of distractions, um, or of they're working at times of day when they are best able to concentrate and be creative, which often tends to be very early in the morning, even for those of us who are night owls. And they layer these periods of intensive work with periods of what I call deliberate rest, which are sort of breaks that often, you know, these can be long walks, they can be exercise, um, but they give us both a chance for our sort of brains to recharge, for our bodies to kind of stretch and sort of to sort of uh, to to reset, but also provide time for our creative. Kind of creative subconscious those you know that part that part of our mind that sort of turns over unsolved problems and explores them from new angles and comes up sometimes with sort of new insights and uh, uh, and sort of aha moments time to do its thing and when you think about what you need to do in graduate school Right, which is not just master a particular body of knowledge, but master a set of practices that allow you to produce new knowledge and preferably to produce interesting knowledge. Mm-hmm. What you've got to do is figure out how to craft a life in which you have more of those insights, in which you are, uh, and so I think that you know uh, that assuming that those are going to come if you spend more and more time in the lab or at the office turns out to be wrong. Um, Amos Tversky, the, you know, one of the, the creators of behavioral economics said people waste years because they don't waste hours. And what he meant by that was, you know, he, he knew very smart colleagues who pursued research that was, you know, it was kind of interesting, but not world-changing because 
they didn't take the time to do stuff like go on long walks with colleagues and really kind of hash out new ideas or sort of sus- or take the time to suspend judgment about what seemed like a crazy idea and ask okay what if this actually is true you know what follows from that how could we figure that how could we know if that was the case what would we learn if it turned out to be so and for him taking those hours meant that he you know sort of he spent his years far more productively than he would have otherwise. And the lives of creative people, when you dive into them, I think show us that you know, what we uh, that what we should all be shooting for is figuring out how to or cr- how to craft days and craft lives that feature both periods of intensive work, but also periods of deliberate rest. And by doing that, you increase the odds that you'll do more creative work, that you'll have a more sustainable career, and also, frankly, you'll also have a happier life. End of rant. Oh, I love it. I could say <laughs> Oh, no, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And I think this sense <laughs> of, um, and absolutely, just again, let's recommend resting, and please do read it because it, 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 will, it will, it's a game changer. Um, but this sense of, embracing a different model of working and that the the PhD gives you an opportunity to do that to embrace a different model of working and really attend to your own rhythms I think is is such an invitation um which is as you say is kind of frightening to embrace because it's very different it feels mm-hmm. kind of countercultural. but then what I was really interested in in terms of looking at this book short the shorter book is that actually this is this is what corporations are doing now. This is what you're saying in this book is that people they're saying, right, well, let's do condensed working, let's do four-day weeks, because actually we can get more done in less time. Don't need to, we don't need to um have all those hours just sitting there because having people, well, you t- you tell us it's <laughs> <Sure. laughs> after we repeat your book back to you. So um, this sense of long weekends and things. Tell, tell us about yeah. that. Tell us about long week, the productivity of long weekends. <laughs> okay, so the sort of the the basic idea behind shorter is that there are companies around the world in a variety of industries at all sizes, from you know restaurants that have as many employees as they have Michelin stars to startups with hundreds of people to established software companies with thousands, who have moved to four day weeks or other kinds of shorter work weeks without cutting salaries and without cutting expectations around productivity or customer service or accessibility. And what they find is that this is possible for a couple very big reasons. One is that when you look at the amount of time that uh, that or of companies waste in unnecessary meetings in or of uh, outmoded, you know, outmoded practices in sort of uh, poorly used technology and self-distraction, the average knowledge worker loses between two and four hours of productive time every day. So in a sense, to paraphrase William Gibson's famous line about the future already being here, it's just not evenly distributed, the four-day week is actually already here. We already have it. It's just (laughs) buried underneath all this other, you know, all this other time rubble. So if you can clear that away, then you can go a long way to being able to do five days worth of work in 
for. What are the implications for this for sort of graduate students? I think sort of the first one is that there are enormous gains to be had if you know if as if you are mindful about how you spend your time, and in particular about the social norms around which sort of time is allocated and consumed. So, you know, I think meetings are a great example of this. That. Um, most companies will take, you know, hour long meetings and turn them into 10 minute standups that have clear agendas that are thoughtful about who needs to be in the room and who doesn't and, or will have, and or if, you know, do the, do the other things that everyone knows meetings really sort of, uh, ought to feature, but all too often don't. One of the important things though, is that you need buy-in from everybody in order to make those, uh, in order to make meetings short and successful. And more broadly, in order to make a shorter work week something that uh, that really works, it is incredibly powerful if you can do it with other people rather than doing it alone. And so, you know, thing number 1 and uh, you know is that it turns out that uh, sort of that if you can you know, if you can implement these practices, if you can solve this problem with other people, the results are much more enduring than they are if you're doing it just by yourself. A second important thing here is that, you know, it's not just sort of balancing work and rest in the course of an individual day that turns out to be valuable, but doing this over the course of weeks or seasons also turns out to be really good for people. And what, you know, what you see in companies now is survey results and sort of uh, that tell us that um, people are happier, they are less likely to burn out, they are more thoughtful about how they spend their time. Um, they also spend more time with family or doing community stuff that turns out, of course, to be really good for most human beings. I think one of the one of the things that many of us struggle with as graduate students is the way in which you know in which graduate school can be socially isolating. And part of the reason that it is so is that you you know you're spending so much time in the library or you know and uh, sort of and so you know being conscious about carving out time for you know, for other things turns out to be sort of really valuable both for your happiness, but also for your capacity to do the kind of work that and have the kinds of ideas that um, make for sort of a satisfying life of the mind. So, so I think, you know, those are, those are, I think the major things yep, uh, that uh, sort of that shorter teaches us or the, or four day week companies teach us. The one other thing I would note is the degree to which, you know, if, when you talk to people about, um, you know, about their experiences before moving to uh, order to four day weeks, just about everybody who does this, it's the kind of person who had previously worked really long hours and had seen that as a sign uh, or an expression of their sort of devotion, their dedication, their professionalism. And a lot of them talk about how, yes, there are things that you learn very early in your career, maybe when your learning curve is steepest, that sort of justify sort of working longer hours. But the value of that really burns out pretty quickly. But the habit is one that turns out to be super hard to break. And that as, 
you know, the, the philosopher Byung-Chul Han says, you know, that we engage in sort of uh, regimes of self-surveillance and self-exploitation. And that one of the great discoveries of the modern corporation and unfortunately the modern university is that you can get a lot more work out of people if you can get them to exploit yourselves than you ever could get from them um, like through formal regimes of exploitation. So getting people to crack their, to self-flagellate rather than to crack the whip on them is infinitely more powerful, more flexible, and harder for people to escape. But the good news is it is possible to do so. And once you have done so, you can do much better work and have a much better life. And we just need to be with that for a minute. So this sense of where are you, who's giving you the work model? What are you adopting? <laughs> and actually there are other models out there um, which are incredibly productive and also serve you, as you say, as a human being. Yes. Love it. You know, and I, you know, I would point out that, you know, very often we learn these models from our mentors or from, you know, sort of from faculty who are sort of, you know, sort of performative, flamboyantly performative about how overworked and in mm. demand and stressed they are. And, you know, oh my God, I have so many papers to grade, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, this is a this is a variant of what you see in every corporation today. But the reality is that there are many, many quieter examples of people who actually figure out how to, number one, manage their time much more effectively and ruthlessly. You know, flexibility sort of you know, we often confuse time flexibility with a complete absence of of time planning. And in a sense, if you treat flexibility that way, what you lose is the flexibility of time because it just kind of evaporates. Um, but who are uh, who are models for ha- for sort of for doing good work and having good lives without burning out and without becoming you know, becoming you know either misanthropes or Oh, you know, or so super, super specialized that they end up becoming, of you know, kind of uh, uh, becoming experts in you know, very straightened kinds of you know kinds of uh, of subspecialties, and therefore again, kind of erode their own you know, sort of erode the life of the mind as they sort of as they practice it and live it. Um, it's not just those people, the ones who are super busy, who are sort of available as models for us. In fact, mm-hmm. there are, you know, there are lots of others who can show us better ways of work if, you know, if we just kind of take notice of them. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's such a toxic culture um, at the moment in academia and people are under such incredible pressure. Um, and I, th- I think it is really important to be thoughtful about how you're treating yourself how you're treating mm-hmm. yourself um in that um so i'm aware of time i really could just talk to you for so much longer but i'm aware of time but i do want to ask one more question Please. that um that came up as I, I was i was reading shorter um and it really struck me how much um uh value the the corporations that you were talking about, the organizations that you were talking about place on kind of 
professional development, professional development for the staff. And I was kind of just working with this metaphor of the CEO of PhD and thinking about professional development for, for PhD students and PhD researchers, like how, how are they doing that for themselves? But I wonder if you could just unpack a little bit more this, this idea of, of professional development and, and what it does and when it happens. Sure. So I think that uh, lots of companies who move to four-day weeks are working in fields in which you know, sort of knowledge moves quickly, right? You're talking about like software development, advertising agencies, et cetera. And so there's a lot of stuff that happens within those fields that's important to keep track of. There's also a lot of stuff that happens outside those fields that sort of you should know about or that can serve as an inspiration for or of work in the future. And so what these companies tend to do actually is to take a fairly broad view of professional development, that it's not just about learning another programming language or keeping up with you know, sort of issues of ad week, but they also, uh, you know, but bosses often are you know, very conscious about encouraging people to do, you know, to do stuff that doesn't have obvious payoff now, but which might be super valuable in the future. And this can be anything from, you know, going to gallery openings to in, you know, at one company taking improv classes. And mm. so I think that, you know, if there is one thing that I would sort of encourage on the part of, you know, on the part of graduate students, it is sort of to take the perspective that professional development is not just something that happens in the classroom and the library and the laboratory. Right, it's not just expressed in terms of the number of pages that you're able to crank out per day, um, but that virtually anything that you do that um, you enjoy that allows you to develop new kinds of skills that allows you to exercise sort of uh, that you know particularly things that are that are different from your work but offers some of the same kinds of rewards that you find in your working life at its best. Those are things that actually are really, really worth cultivating and developing because they can provide both a source of rejuvenation, occasionally a source of sort of solace, but also provide a degree of perspective that turns out to be extremely valuable in long and challenging careers. So just really quickly, um, there was a lovely study that was done, uh, a longitudinal study of Southern California scientists starting in the late 1950s by a UCLA uh, psychologist named Bernice Iduson. And she gave personality tests and sort of to um, sort of 50 young PhDs starting, I think in 1956 or 57, went back and continued testing them for you know, the next 30 years or so, and found it turned out no difference between the IQs or psychological profiles of like the people who turned into Nobel Prize winners and holders of chairs. Um, and the second group that whose careers were kind of, you know, perfectly fine, but utterly undistinguished. Eventually, though, what one of her students discovered was 
the big difference between the high performers and the low performers was that the high performers had hobbies and sports that so you know donald cram the organic chemist who won a nobel prize i think in the 1980s for example was a really serious surfer and he talked about how <laughs> surfing was both an escape from science but in a way was kind of like science mm. and that you know all of the high performers had these kinds of serious hobbies and it both gave them a kind of psychological release. It forced them to be a lot more ruthless in their time. And, but that in turn created a sense that they had, they actually had time both for sort of their regular work for their hobbies and for kind of exploration time. And the, the low performing group in contrast was the one that talked about how stressed out and time pressed they were. And so I think that the, you know, the big, the, or the two big takeaways from that are number one, you know, sort of have a sport and hobby. And number two, that the, you know, that, uh, sort of that, that kind of time pressure turns out to be something that is very, very subjective right? Or of the amount of time that you have is the amount of time that you create. And one of the ways in which you create more time for serious work, for serious thinking is sort of to have, you know, is to have and maintain a life that is actually more balanced, that has more things going on in it that you attend to and you take seriously, rather than or of to craft a life in which all you're doing is science or scholarship. End of second wow. rant. No, uh, this just encourages the p a perspective, a different perspective, um, which could be truly productive, really permission giving, but also could really change people's relationship um, with their PhD work, but also with them with themselves. I just oh, read the books, people. <laughs> um, listen, listen to Emma. She knows what she's talking about. <laughs> Yeah, no money has changed hands, I promise you. Um, right. So then that's all that's all brilliant. And then I always am really cheeky, and I just started with extra at the end in terms of would there be a top tip at all that, that that we've talked about today that you would that you would offer to us to take away? You know, um the first what I would recommend for sort of students is um sort of design your days around sort of periods of intensive work of like 90 minutes to two hours that's about as long as most of us can focus and then immediately sort of uh at minute 121 or minute 91 put down your pencils go for a walk go out for 20 minutes look at it into the distance then come back do that two maybe three times and just working learning to work that way to sort of uh, to be more productive, um, and uh, but to also leave you more time for you know sort of to live a life and for it to be a good life. Thank you so much. Brilliant stuff. Brilliant stuff. Um, now you need to write another book. So I can invite you back in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on it. Believe me. Brilliant. Thank you so so much. And thank you all for listening.